Welcome to Lectures with Mr. Judy. I'm Mr. Judy, and today we are going to take a look at the home front during the Civil War. We're going to look at how the increased killing power of the weapons really affected the amount of men that fought in the war, how it thrust women into an extra role as nurses during the war, and some of the changes within healthcare at the time, but we're going to specifically take a look at some of the economic and social strains on the North and the South and how that ended up changing regular everyday life for those who weren't part of the fighting just as much as the fighting affected those who participated. And today I'd like to start off with a selection from the diary of a 10-year-old girl named Carrie Berry. And Carrie lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and this is from her diary of August 1865. It starts, Monday, it was raining this morning, and we thought we could not have any shelling today, so I nursed sister while mama would do a little work, but before night, we had to run into the cellar. August 2nd, we have not been shelled much today, but the muskets have been going all day. I have done but little today to nurse sister. She has not been well. August 3rd, Wednesday, this was my birthday. I was 10 years old, but I did not have a cake. Times were too hard, so I celebrated with ironing. I hope by my next birthday, we will have peace in our land so that I can have a nice dinner. August 4th, the shells have been flying all day, and we have stayed in the cellar. Mama put some stockings on this morning, and I will try to finish them before school commences. August 5th, Friday. I knit all morning. In the evening, we had to run to Auntie's and get in the cellar. We did not feel safe in our cellar. They fell so thick and fast. Think about the story from this little girl. Just over the course of this week, and the amount of times that her family was affected because the war came so close to home. That's what we're going to take a look at today. The toll of war affected both the North and the South in various ways. The biggest was a reliance upon the industry to take care of everyday needs and to adapt to the rapid changes the war forced, such as evolving gender roles, inflation, and new war strategies. So we're going to start out with this first section here, talking about how the increased killing power of the weapons changed the face of the war. Despite the best attempts, the Civil War casualties increased in most battles each year because more and more you start to see a resistance in changing a strategy and technology is now outpacing the strategy. As we start this idea, I want to define a pretty important word for you real quick. That word is casualty. Casualty is a member of the armed forces lost to death, wounds, sickness, capture, or just an inability to be found, right? As in going missing in action. So when we talk about these battles and we talk about death toll numbers, right? It's important to remember that casualty isn't necessarily just death, right? 
but all of a sudden you're no longer to able to fight because of a wound, you're a casualty, right? The other side gets you, you're a casualty. You got a stomach bug that day, you can't get out of your tent, you're a casualty, right? All of a sudden you just decide you had enough and run away, you're a casualty. The bloodiest battle of the war was clearly Gettysburg, right? The one with the most casualties. But I want to talk about a piece of technology that changes the Civil War in a very fundamental way, and that's the mini ball. The mini ball was the round that was fired out of the guns in the war. It was a new, a little bit lighter weight type bullet, and once it's shot out of the gun um, and it would hit its target, upon that impact, it would flatten out. And so, unlike a musket ball that would stay in that circular shape and it was easy to kind of identify where it was in the body. If you have a good pair of tweezers and a still body, you can a lot of times figure out where that musket ball went. And if it's not too deep, you could surgically remove it. The mini ball is going to be very different because it flattens out and it starts to even create shrapnel inside the body. It's really hard to be able to get all of the pieces of that round out of a person's body, assuming that that person lived right? And while this all sounds kind of morbid in a way, and maybe not the most thrilling to be talking about what happens when a bullet enters inside the body, this was a huge change, right? Because the mini ball would a lot of times pierce into the body deeper, and it would get to a point where limbs were unable to be saved, and amputation was a major, major part of the Civil War, because... You're not able to get out the shrapnel and then you either risk losing a limb or lead poisoning, which ultimately could lead to death, right? And so the mini ball was just this huge, huge game changer. And all as it is, is it's just that little bullet that's getting fired out of the gun. So that was a major way in which the killing power was increased just by industry, right? In a way that people made it. Killing power also increased because of a lack of ability on the generals of both sides to allow their strategy to be changed in order to accommodate this increased killing power of the bullet, right? Now, previously, in most wars, right, um, we're still in that very linear type thinking, as in both armies would create a set of lines, you load, you shoot, after that initial volley, the lines move closer, you load, you shoot, you volley, lines move closer, load, shoot, volley, lines move closer, lines move closer until hand-to-hand -hand combat is now reached. Not only is the mini ball this, this new industry um, killing machine, but also the type of guns that were made for the Civil War. Now we're not only talking about guns that can shoot further, but we're also talking about guns with tighter grooves in the barrels, longer barrels. It ensures greater accuracy over distances. And so while most of the time the lines in the battles were very used to this volley and step in, volley and step in type mentality, and then really only sweating it out, you know, within 100 yards or, or 50 yards or so of, of accuracy, now we're starting to see these distances increase, right? And you could be 
at least semi-accurate up to 150 yards away and and as you got closer and you have these guns that are firing more accurate rounds and people aren't realizing what's going on all of a sudden these front lines are just falling and they're they're falling in droves right and the soldiers of the civil war were terrified to be on the front line because why wouldn't you be like you know you're most likely going to to die in those front lines it's really really hard to survive because of the increased technology of this mini ball you know that if you get shot your if your life isn't over your war experience probably is right and so the strategy of the civil war started to become who could ever break the front lines of their opponent first and cause that initial retreat you're probably going to win right and so again a change in bullet a change in guns a refusal to change strategy is really going to start to drain the armies of the civil of both sides in the civil war and how that starts to affect the home front is you start to see a greater need for men and more and more as we're going to see in just a little bit um, coupled with the problems of of droughts and other issues that farmers and people who stayed behind were starting to face when president lincoln and, and president davis are coming out and asking for more men more men more men hey we need we need more more men out here to fight and take up arms it really starts to become kind of an advertising and marketing difficulty because why would you want to keep sending them out i mean if you're in a small town of five like 3,000 or less, and all your young men are getting taken away, at some point you start to kind of question the morality of this war and why the war is being fought because your young men are going and they're not coming back. And so what this does start to create is a bit of a distrust in government. And it it's pretty easy to see how the politicians of the day were very focused on winning a war and how the people who weren't directly involved in fighting the war really start to feel like they get left behind. Okay, in the second section, I'd like to talk for just a minute or two about healthcare in the war and some of the, some of the changes in healthcare that we start to see. It's important to remember at this time that antiseptic medicine is in its infancy, right? A lot of modern day uh, medical miracles that we talk about, I mean, you have to realize are within like maybe 200, 300 years of a history. And so in, in the timeline of the world, that's pretty, you know, pretty young still, right? And we're still figuring out things like dentistry is just barely over a 200 year, year old science. And we're still trying to figure out, you know, the best way to take care of teeth, right? And so with antiseptic medicine in its infancy, I mean, we're, it's a lot of trial and error as to what can pre prevent the spread of diseases, what can prevent somebody from going septic from a wound and then um, getting an infection that, again, not only might take a limb, but also might claim that person's life. So... We are a little bit better in the Civil War than we were in the Revolutionary War. Disease took only double the amount of men as the actual fighting, right? So if 30,000 men died due to fighting, 60,000 men died uh, due to disease. Again, not a, great, not a great statistic. However, at least we're getting, you know, in the right direction here. 
Um, both sides were in a civil war were very unprepared on how to take care of sick and wounded men. And because both sides were unprepared and didn't really necessarily place very much um, money and resources and time and effort into healthcare, what you start to see is both sides leaving not just prisoners, but their own soldiers lying and moving on, right? It was not uncommon during the Civil War for, for battlefield photographers and journalists, right, to go out and take photos of the, the battlefield and, and start to actually maybe see a few soldiers that are, are still alive. And it was really just grotesque, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, it created a high number of abandoned men and it created trust issues between the men and their government, right? When you're having to leave behind your brother or your friend or your cousin or something like that because a general said, I don't know how to take care of them. I mean, it really starts to kind of put in your mind like, well, then you should figure it out, right? It shouldn't be that hard to have to take care of, take care of the sick and wounded. And so because we have such high rates of, of injuries and wounds and dis like disease and sickness and you know there's this inability to take care of everybody who needs to be taken care of out of necessity women enter the war as nurses despite male doctors objections and a lot of this came out of ego right the fact that male doctors felt that women were intruding on their territory and that there was no no real reason for women to be there um However, just more hands on the battlefield meant maybe more men actually might get saved. Um, there was a big difference for both the North and the South in taking care of their own versus taking care of a stranger. Um, the home versus battlefield or hospital was a very, very different, different mode of care. And if you were a soldier, you were hoping that there was a battle near a city. Because if there's a battle near a city, your rate of survival, your chances of survival would go up because there might be a hospital or there might be a little bit more resources in the city. However, if you were fighting more out on the countryside, I mean, that's kind of a death warrant in a lot of way. So the fact that women come in and, and reinstitute some of these practices from the Revolutionary War, separating the sick from the healthy and, and kind of prioritizing the sick and the wounded, um, we're going to start to see that the, the chances of death start to turn around a little bit um, and, and kind of slow down. Nursing finally becomes a reputable job for the first time in history, specifically our history, right? Um, women, you know, are growing up and saying, hey, I, I feel like I could be a nurse and I feel like I, I could make a difference. And then, of course, after the Civil War and sanitariums and hospitals, um, asylums, you start to see an increase in the amount of female workers there. However, because the healthcare during the war is so bad, one out of every nine soldiers from the North, okay, in the Union, one out of every nine would desert and leave the army unexpect unexpectedly, right? One out of nine in the North and one out of seven in the South or the Confederacy, right? would just look around and say, I don't think this is worth it anymore. And they just leave. And you know what? There was no punishment unless they were caught, right? And um, some of these men returned home. Some of these men headed west and started a new life. But when you take a look at at this healthcare, 
right? And the things that were, were changing. Yes, we're getting new medicine. And yes, nursing is helping save the lives of soldiers that otherwise wouldn't. But I mean, in the battlefield, it's really rudimentary healthcare. And it wasn't uncommon for somebody to go home without an arm or a leg. And in some ways, I don't totally blame some of these soldiers that looked around and said, this isn't for me because I couldn't really think how my life, like how I could live my life without an arm or a leg. Um, and so again, poor healthcare leads to desertions, leads to higher rates of death. And, and thankfully enough, the role of women you know, starts to slow the rates of death and, and kind of turn it for a positive. All right, so let's get into the bulk of how the Civil War is going to change the home front, you know, the ordinary citizen. And... We're going to start this first part with war creates different needs for the military and private citizens because the whole point now um, and the Civil War is going to show us that when you throw industry behind your war effort, that's one of the keys to winning. And so industry is going to pivot and make whatever the war needs. Right. And so if the men need boots, we're going to make boots. And that's great for boot makers, bad for for shoemakers. Right. So. Textile manufacturers are going to struggle in the North largely because they were cotton dependent. And while some makers in the North, some textile manufacturers would still find a way to get cotton from the South or another source, maybe even try growing your own, which was very not, not easy in the North. Um, some are going to have to pivot, right? And so some go out of business. Shoe factories are going to going to go bankrupt, right? These shoe factories that made shoes for slaves, they're out of the game. Um, some of these textile manufacturers are going to still rely on cotton. They're going to go out of business. And so again, the smart companies are going to pivot and are going to see and ask, Hey, what does the war need me to make right now? And they're going to make a lot of money of it, right? Industries have boomed boot making specifically for soldiers shipbuilding because the government needs ships because there are going to be some naval battles in a war manufacture of woolen goods right and no longer you know is cotton going to be the same type of choice that it once was so now we're going to raise sheep and we're going to shave them we're going to get that wool and we're going to to make things out of wool right which tends to be a little bit more durable than cotton it also tends to be a little bit hotter which is great in some you know in the winter months not so great in the summer months um but it it works out right and agricultural goods um, are going to be in high demand but also not only are the goods going to be in high demand but these basic simple machines like the cotton gin and you know for example may well maybe that's a poor example in the north but you know these simple basic machines that women could use out on the farm to still produce a harvest right and and so again these businesses that go away from making shoes for slaves to making boots for soldiers, they survive. The ones that do not look to innovate and do not change are going to go out of business. By the end of the war, the government of the United States is going to give out over $1 billion in contracts, right? $1 billion in contracts. 
And in case you're wondering, the United States government did not bring in $1 billion worth of stuff. And so taxes are going to go up and we're going to see that during the war and after the war and it's going to cause some more issues. Inflation in the north reached as high as 80% in certain areas because, right, it's just the, the idea of scarcity. Um, when, when products are scarce, you can rise the you can raise the prices up and that happened quite a bit. And so it seems unfair that, you know, a few are going to make money off of the needy, but that's exactly what happens. Right. And so for those men and women who didn't go and fight in a war, right. And they stay in and work wages go up only as half as much as prices do. And this is another thing that leads to inflation, right? People just don't have the same amount of money to go out and buy stuff because, your money that you have available to your your disposable income affects how much money you're going to go out and spend. When people don't have as much money to go out and spend, um, bad things generally happen for our economy. And so during the war, a lot of workers will go on strikes to ask for more more pay, right? Um, you know, higher higher rates of pay. But many industry bosses are just going to say, hey, you know what? Like if you're not fighting and you're not willing to work for me, I'm going to go find somebody who is. Um, so we do, we do start to see an increase in employment of women, increase employment of former slaves, immigrants, right? Um, people who were more than happy to fill these, these jobs. However, the whole point of it was, right, is that these men who stayed behind were like, hey, you're not paying me enough to survive. Um, you know, I need more money. And... And a business owner would say, eh, well, I get it. And I'm sorry, it sucks for you. However, you want a dollar an hour and I can go hire an Irishman for 40 cents an hour. So sorry, buddy. You know, like I'm, I'm going to go with, with the immigrant. And so this actually does start to kind of um, affect the immigration in the United States and also affect the areas in which the immigrants would settle. So because there were people who refused to go and fight, and there's a high rate of death, right? We're gonna to have to institute a military draft. And this is a, the second big thing that we're gonna see how economic and social strains um, create different rules for soldiers and, and people who stay behind. So a military draft is when a government requires people to join the military instead of taking volunteers. Here in the, United, in the history of the United States, we really revere our military and we always Talk about the volunteerism of the military, you know, that people generally um, want to sign up and we don't have to necessarily coax them or bribe them into sign up, you know, except for certain times in the Civil War is going to be one of those times. And so in the North, you were either drafted or if you were drafted and you didn't want to do it, you paid 300 fee or $300 as a fee to get out of the draft. And so this really starts to create a lot of class divides, right? Because um, the popular saying at the time was, it's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight, right? Because if you have the $300, you don't have to go and fight. However, $300 back then is not, you know, the same as it was today. And so a lot of people are able, well, not everybody was able to buy their way out of the war. And so, you know, there were these that were drafted and they're like, I don't want to go and fight. And so only 7%, 7% of those who are drafted actually show up and go out and fight. Um, 25% are going to hire a substitute, right? And say, hi, my name is 
is Scott Johnson. Um, this guy's going to fight on my be- on my behalf. And a lot of times draft officers didn't care. They were just asked to fill quotas, right? Give me warm bodies that can hold a gun, point and shoot. And so it didn't necessarily matter if Scott Johnson was going to go out and fight if he provided somebody else. 45% were exempted for cause, right? Often a health issue, depending on who your, your doctor was and what sort of connections you had. Um, you could maybe forge a note about a health issue, something like that. But of course, the big, you know, so 45% are going to get exempted, you know, health issue, school, religion at this time is more revered. However, not many people try to claim religious exemption from fighting. 20 to 25% just refuse to show up, right? Hey, I got drafted. Okay. I need to report at this time and people just wouldn't report. And in fact, most of them would leave, right? These early draft Dodgers. And so riots took place in New York over the draft on July 13th to the 16th in 1863. Over 105 people died in a violence. Most were African-Americans who were, were free men now from the South and couldn't buy their way out of the war. Um, and, and poor immigrants and just you know, those of the lower classes, the, it got to be so bad that President Lincoln had to call the Union Army in just to put down the, the riots in New York. And again, this is just a few days after Gettysburg. And while we look back at Gettysburg now and we say, hey, this was this great moral victory, right? And the, the North has gained a lot of momentum and the war has now changed, right? We talk about Gettysburg as this major turning point. Um, you know, it's important to remember that it didn't necessarily have that immediate impact because people were still resistant to going and fighting. So this is what's going on in the North largely, right? Like you have businesses that either pivot and survive or they refuse to change and they they die off, right? It, It affects small towns very heavily, so much so to the point that wages only go up half as much as prices, at least inflation, at least a lot of people out of jobs, it leads to workers' riots. Um, the lack of men who want to go fight are going to lead to draft riots. And so things in the North are not exactly great. But as you might imagine, things in the South aren't really much better. Um, in the South, one interesting thing to happen is that the South is going to become more urbanized meaning people are going to move from the rural areas and the suburbs are going to move into the cities. And this is probably best seen with the city of Richmond, Virginia. Um, even though it was a capital of the Confederacy, the city's going to triple in size because people just have nowhere else to go, right? Um, if you stay in these small towns, small towns have less services. Go to the big city. Big city has more services and resources to take care of you. And so a lot of people start to move to these big cities and even in the South today, right? You have these major places like Richmond and Knoxville and Atlanta and Savannah, um, you know, to name a few just off the top of my head of these major urban centers that people are, are going to start to go to. And so you start to see this urbanization movement. Uh, second thing is South is going to have literally just as many issues drafting as the North did, right? Um, you could get excused if you had 20 or more slaves because that meant that you had a big plantation and, and that or a farm and now you're important to the war effort for what you're providing. Many would pay up to about $5,000 for a substitute 
to, for somebody to go fight on their behalf and while you look at that and you go, wait a minute, if people can pay 300 bucks in North, how in the world do people in the South pay $5,000? Remember, there's a lot, there's a lot more money in the South, you know, based within certain families, um, these big plantation owning families. And so in certain areas, it's been documented that prices rose as high as 9,000%, right? Based on based on the scarcity and the fact that the South just couldn't produce everything it needed, which was in a lot of ways, its biggest or one of its biggest failures. The fact that the South just couldn't take care of itself and had to rely on its trade with foreign partners. And these foreign partners were not very um, satisfied with the South and very skeptical as to what actually could happen. And so, yeah, up to 9,000%, that was not me misspeaking right the things in the south went bonkers and so um, with so many men off fighting or in government in the south women were forced to take over farms and a lack of machinery in the south made the transition extremely hard Uh, women really lacked a lot of the knowledge on how to take care of the day-to-day operations of the farm slaves began to rebel against their female masters because there was a little bit less fear there. Um, typically, like female masters were a little bit more compassionate, and so slaves kind of took advantage of that, those relationships, and would would desert their masters. And even though women gained this increased role in society and government, it was lessened due to the, the lack of slave respect. And so, I mean, the South is really, really going to struggle in a lot of ways, in a, a lot of the same ways as the North. And so. In the South, right, because it can't take care of itself, um, people are going to move from the countryside to the city. Prices are going to skyrocket again, right? It's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight in the South. The same thing. Drafts are going to happen. People are going to pay for a substitute. People are going to desert the army, right? People are going to to just not show up. And But yet at the same point in time, we see an increased role for women. However... Uh, you know, we can debate the merits of how effective it was. So just wrapping all this up and putting a bow on it, for those who didn't take part in the war as far as the fighting goes, life changed an awful lot, right? Life changed primarily because, because businesses had to change, because homes had to change, and those who were a little bit more progressive and forward-thinking are going to survive whereas those who are just trying to weather the storm those who refuse to change are going to largely struggle and neither the government of the united states or the government of the confederate states of of america neither government was in a position to take care of its citizens and so you start to see this priority given right to those who are going to going to go out and fight and making sure that the army is going to win the war because after all up to this point in history nobody is really getting remembered for being the best president by taking the absolute most best care of the american citizens people get remembered as a really good president because of the wars that they win right think about george washington and and andrew jackson and william henry harrison james monroe even right Um, can kind of be thrown in this conversation. And while Lincoln has a soft heart for his countrymen, it really starts to seem like more and more his heart was more in the place of his soldiers. Thank you guys for spending this time with me. Hope you found the lecture um, 
engaging. I hope you learned something. If you have a moment, please go on and rate it five stars, five stars, and I'll see you back here next time.